0: We're continuing in our study on Peter, and we'll be jumping into the letters that Peter wrote to the early church and community of followers of Jesus, but first we have to figure out who this guy is, and as we started last week sort of digging a little bit into where he's from, what his lifestyle was like, his profession, what things would have been like for him, this week we're going to ask, well, who is Jesus to Peter? So last week we asked who is Peter, and this week we're going to talk and look a little bit at Peter's experience with Jesus. When you start to look at this in the Gospels, like what did Peter experience and how often did it happen and like his different encounters with Christ, he experienced, has more experiences or at least recorded experiences with Jesus than anybody else. Last week we talked about how the gospel writers often use Peter as a prototype of all the disciples. Sort of if you couldn't understand what every single disciple was doing, we'll kind of grab all their characteristics or experiences and put them into the life and context of Peter. When we look at Peter's experiences with Jesus then, we start to see what we talked about last week. A whole bunch of miracles on the sea. Peter's a fisherman. That's like the best rolly thing. It's so awesome. But I also f- like, feel like it's a train, an oncoming train. I'm like, every once in a while, it's like, that train sounds out from Alma. sounds like it's getting closer. Okay, uh, there's miracles on the sea. We talked about one of them last week. Which one did we talk about last week? See, it is getting closer. It's coming right at me. <laughs> just joking. What did we talk about last week? We talked about one primary one, too, like walking on the water. We talked about calming the storm. We talked about miraculous catch of fish. All of those miracles that are happening on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. Um, we talked about Jesus feeding both 5,000 and 4,000. Peter is at both of those events. He's called as one of the first followers of Jesus, and he starts to experience all of these miraculous things. And I know for us who've been raised in the church for a long time, we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, feeding of lots of people, got it, miraculous amount of, like, we joke about it when we have a spaghetti feed like, in the church, we're like, and we'll pray for the miraculous multiplication of the spaghetti for all the teenagers. Um, so when we joke about those things, though, I think we kind of lose what it would have really truly been like to sit in that place and to watch only you know five loaves and two fish come out, or rather the other way around, two loaves and five fish, and, and these like handfuls of things, five loaves, two fish, um, and then see 12 basketfuls picked up and everyone's satisfied. And what a miracle it would be to see those things happen, but also confusing. Because I bet there were times when they were actually hungry, and they were like, Jesus, can you just do that bread thing again? And, and maybe he didn't, right? It's not a magic trick. So these different intentional miracles that Peter's experiencing and observing and watching Jesus. When we talked about Peter last week, we talked about this rabbinic discipleship system, which is an entirety, an entire invitation to participate in the master's life. So when you agreed to follow a rabbi, you were saying, I want to wake up with this guy. Like, I want to wake up in the community of disciples, the Havarah the group of friends, pushing and following in this one direction. I want to see what types of prayers are prayed in the morning, prayed midday, prayed in the evening, prayed before you eat, after you eat. Um, What happens when Jesus encounters somebody in need? What happens when Jesus encounters somebody who's marginalized on the outside? And Peter and the disciples are observing all of these things. Peter is unique amongst the disciples and that he is in an inner circle of three with James and John. He knew James and John growing up. They're all partners in the fishing business together. They come from the same small fishing village of Bethsaida on that shore of Galilee, which we talked about last week and we'll look at a little bit this week as well. And in those inner three, those three select, they are the ones that amongst all the 12 disciples and followers, they're the ones that get to go in with Jesus when he raises a girl from the dead. They're the ones that get to be on the mountaintop when Moses and Elijah show up too. Those inner circle three, Peter, James, and John, they're the ones that are there all the time. They're the ones that all argue over things and be present at all the different bits and pieces of Jesus's life and ministry. And as Peter continues to follow Jesus, he sees that the sick are healed, that the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, Dead are raised, and captives are set free. Notoriously, Jesus' cousin John, who is being imprisoned by Herod, is not set free. He meets an untimely end. But other captives are set free in Jesus' time, right? Demoniacs, people who've been imprisoned and in chains, wandering around, have been set free when Jesus shows up. People who are held captive by their own body and their own ailments and their own mental illness are being set free when Jesus comes. And as we mentioned, Moses and Elijah show up with Jesus and they hang out on that Mount of Transfiguration which many scholars would put at Mount Hermon, even though we like to remember it at Mount Tabor because it's like a really cool little mountain in the Valley of Jezreel. We have no record of Jesus. We grew up near there but not necessarily being on top. When you go today, by the way, the tour buses cannot get to the top so you have to walk, so have fun. Um, it's too steep if you go to Mount Tabor, but Mount Hermon at the edge of that little bit is probably where we'd put this weird appearance of Moses and Elijah showing up. And do you remember what Peter says? He's like, this is awesome. Let's build you guys three tents and let's just camp out here and hang here for a while. Nope, that's not the plan. But he has all these experiences with Jesus. Most importantly though, I think he gets to sit in and listen with cupped ears like this as Jesus teaches parables and interpretations of Torah. As he reaches out and says, "You know, this is what you've thought that it meant, but here's what I'm gonna share with you today. And in all of that, he gets to hear Jesus's favorite sermon, which is that the kingdom of heaven is here. That the rule and the reign of God is present in the person of Jesus, and that God has drawn near to God's people, God with us, Emmanuel, in the person of Jesus. And that if a sick person is healed, the kingdom of heaven is here. The way that God intended it to be is present. The rule and reign of God is here. That is the good news, the gospel, that if this woman's hand has been healed, the kingdom of heaven is here. If this person walks, if this person is risen from the dead, then it means that the rule and the reign of God is in this place. So in the midst of all of this, then, after Peter has experienced this for three years of Jesus's ministry, he's lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, experienced all of manner of things he didn't think he would experience, who does Peter think that Jesus is? Does he just think that he's a miracle worker? Because we know that there are those in the Bible. Elijah and Elisha, they did beautiful, wonderful miracles. They even raised from the dead, right? Other people. How and what is Peter thinking? Well, we have this beautiful confession in the gospels, specifically in Matthew 16. Let's turn to it together and you can open up your Bibles if you want or you can read the screen here behind us. We'll kind of go through the story because Jesus is going to ask Peter and the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you think I am? After all this time and all the things you've witnessed and experienced, who do you think I am? So Matthew 16 says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? If you read in the gospel, Mark says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? Now, for first stop, if you're a good sparker, you're going to ask a good question right now with one verse. Where is Caesarea Philippi? Why do I need to know that bit of information? Why is the gospel writer making sure that I know that? So let's look. Remember last week we talked about how Peter and the other disciples, and including Jesus, are raised in religious Galilee where Torah-observant Jews are, and they're hanging out in that sort of triangle between Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. Triangle meaning just these three cities that are mentioned often in the Gospels and where Jesus and the disciples are hanging out quite a bit and some of the disciples are from. Now in religious Galilee, tell me about Peter's life. He's Torah observant, he's kosher keeping, he's going to synagogue on Shabbat, he's memorizing text, and he's with other religious Jews. We know as we read through the Gospels, and particularly in Matthew 5 and other places, that there's a lot of different type of people following Jesus. People from non-Jewish areas, non-Jews are coming. But for the most part, this is a group of Torah observant followers of Jesus, and they're all hanging out and following him. They're from that tiny, beautiful little village somewhere in the area on that north shore of Galilee and Bethsaida. It's humble. It's modest. It's connected to the land. It's connected to the rhythms of the land, to God's calendar in the land, and to God's rules and laws. Even as they fish, they're keeping Torah. What type of fish can we eat? What else can we eat with those fish, right? What are the rules? And so we have Peter and the disciples moving from this beautiful pastoral Galilean countryside where there is intersection with Romans and others, but they can kind of stay in their own little communities. And then Jesus says, let's go to Caesarea Philippi. And as Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi, he takes them from that portion on that north shore of the Sea of Galilee and starts to walk them about 30 miles north, between 26 to 30 miles north to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So ready? Let's go. Here we go. When we we go there together, we'll let you take a bus to Caesarea Philippi. You don't have to walk the whole way. But as they get there, Caesarea Philippi is located at the base of the Hermone Mountain Range. Kind of if you were to think at the very toenail of the Hermone Mountain Range where these waters flow out at the At the base of Hermon, as we look at this beautiful mountain range there, we have Mount Hermon coming down Nimrod's Fortress later on with the Crusaders, and there are little springs that come out, and we have this place called Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon is about 9,200 feet high at its highest peak. You can go skiing there. It is often snow-capped during the winters. It is always snow-capped during the winters. And it's part of the tribal allotment of Dan. Now, when the Israelites first enter into the land of Canaan, the Danites don't get that area. They get an area down near the valleys closer towards Jerusalem and the Shephelah but they're not able to take and hold it. So they end up getting different area pushed all the way to the north. It becomes the location of one of the two golden calves that are set up as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. And they say, okay, you can work worship in Jerusalem, Judea, but we, the Israelites in the north, we're all these 10 other tribes, we're gonna start worshiping these golden calves at Bethel and Tel Dan. It is north, west and high, which if you know anything about Israel means it's also wet. So we have snow-capped, but we also have freshwater streams that are going down. And the three large springs are the headwaters of what become the Jordan River. And the Dan Spring, being the largest karstic spring, which means an underground limestone fissure where water flows, it's the largest one in the Middle East. And when you go to Tel Dan and you see that spring water flowing, it's massive, it's loud, it's incredible, it's fast, and it's cold, and it's fresh and beautiful. And as a result, it was considered sacred and it connected to different divinities within the Canaanite systems as well. So when the Israelites first show up there, Hermon is actually related to the Hebrew word for sacred or harem. And there were sacred gods and goddesses worshipped in that area, particularly the storm god, fertility god, Baal. But when Alexander the G, the original gangsta, comes through the time. He conquers the area in 333 B.C., and then ultimately in 198 B.C.E., the place becomes known as Panias, named after the Greek Greek goat god Pan. And Kevin will do this great teaching on how you can do all the connections of the etymology here of pandemonium and panic and all of those things sort of coming from this thing. Now, if you're already paying attention to the screen, you know we're in some trouble, Okay. This is a half-man, half-goat, and in the areas where Pan was worshipped, Pan was known as the god of flocks, represented as part human, part goat, and Pan meant to pasture in old Arcadian language. Pan lived in high hills and caves, was worshipped outdoors, where there were abundant water sources that pointed to fertility. And that is why this place, Caesarea Philippi, is also known as Panias. Or in Arabic today, banyas, because the P doesn't translate all the way through, so it retains the B. Jesus takes them to this region, Caesarea Philippi. Now, Pan often dancing and involved in sexual fertility rites, the Greeks associated Pan with victory in battle, joining with Pan and Dionysus in their depictions of their processions. And the walls of the caves at Caesarea Philippi held marble plaques dedicated to Pan with statues in the niches. And ultimately, Zeus and Hermes and Nemesis were placed in the area as well. When you get to Caesarea Philippi, this is what you encounter you encounter massive idol worship in the eyes of a first-century Torah-observant, Leviticus-keeping Jew. And so when Jesus starts to walk them to this area, they're moving from that smaller, Torah-focused community, to a massive, beautiful city. First-century A.D., Caesarea Philippi had the Grotto of Pan, which is now known as Panias, but they had other things, too. You see, when Herod returned home, Herod the Great, returned home after escorting Caesar to the sea in 20 BC. This is when he's like, okay, I got Caesar on my, on my side. We're all happy. He goes and erects a beautiful temple of white stone in the territory of Xenodonris near the place called Panion. And it was the most celebrated place that Herod further adorned with the temple, which he consecrated to Caesar Augustus. So we have Greco-Roman gods being worshiped there. We have Canaanite gods being worshiped there. We have... A lot of explicit sort of enclosures where you could really connect to the goat god pan in the uh, non-biblical sense of that word. And then after Herod the Great dies, his son Philip the Tetrarch is appointed ruler of the Greek-speaking territories in the north. Not the place where Jesus is from, but north of that. And this is part of that area of the Sea of Galilee. He gets this area. And so he enlarges the temple. He's like, well, you thought my dad liked Caesar. I love Caesar. I think he's amazing. And I'm going to continue to make a temple dedicated to Caesar's divinity. And I'm going to rename it Philip's Caesarea because it's mine and not my dad's. And I'm going to issue coins to celebrate the founding of the city. And I'm going to attach my own name to the place. And I'll become, this will become the center of my rule in the north. So unlike the Galilee of the Disciples, Under Herod Antipas' control, this area remains primarily Gentile. It's reaching far north towards Damascus, towards Lebanon, and Caesarea Philippi is a center of Hellenistic pagan worship and the celebration of the divine Caesar. So as the disciples start to walk from Bethsaida following their Torah observant rabbi, they've got to be wondering, why are we going here? And I think they're thinking, this is not, right? I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I mean, you can't imagine maybe the muttering that is happening as they're heading this way to the place where their parents probably said, by the way, you can go everywhere, but don't go there, right? Um, And so instead, Jesus is like, hey, have you heard of Vegas? There's a strip, and we can go and see all of these things, right? In the heart of this thriving Hellenistic city, Surrounded by stone images to Greek and Syrian gods, temples devoted to the Roman Empire and their imperial cult, this is where Jesus is going to ask his followers to identify him. So let's go back to Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, now you know what that is in your head, right? I think maybe early gospel readers were like, no way, ooh, Oh, right? This is like, why are you going there? He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And you can almost hear in his response, not this. Standing in the midst of watching all of these other Behaviors and gods and goddesses and emperors being worshipped and demanding loyalty and fidelity. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Not these dead gods here, not these statues, not these idols, the living God. What is he declaring? When he's later asked, who is Jesus? What is Peter declaring in this moment to Christ, to himself, to anyone who would hear When he says this, when he says, this is who you are, what does he mean? It's an interesting question, right? Like we can say today in our good Christology, well, this means he believes that. And you could go through all of your Romans road, or you could go through your five spiritual laws, or whatever it might be, right? What does Peter mean in this place? I want to suggest that when Jesus says, Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, son of a dove or son of John, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. That when he affirms that identity, he is saying, the son of the living God, the son of man, when I own those identities in Caesarea Philippi, I am upending all pagan notions associated with this location. I'm in charge of this too. When he affirms what Peter is saying, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, and he says, good job, you get it. He's walked them all the way for an incredible object lesson. Say, this is not life here. And Jesus replies, not and doesn't say, hey, great idea that you had on your own. He says to Peter, you didn't come up with that, by the way. The only way you can know that is because my father has revealed it to you which I always take great comfort in personally just as a pastor and somebody who has found themselves occasionally telling people about Jesus like every Sunday. Um, When I do that, when any one of us try to share the glimpse that we might have of the living God, it's not up to us to reveal it to another, but it's through the work and power of the Father. Jesus continues, after Peter makes that incredible declaration in that place and space, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Upon this rock. Now immediately everybody will say, oh, I remember last week, Danielle, when you shared, right, I'm just joking, "Um, and you said that Simon's name had been changed to Peter, which is Kepha, which is Cephas, which is Petros, and that that can mean rock or rocky, So a lot of people have interpreted that this is the point in time when Jesus said to Peter, got it, now you're in charge of the church. Upon you, Peter, rocky, this rock, I will build my church. But there's something interesting again in the place where they're at. You see, where they're at, there was a place called the Gate of Hades, and there was a rock there. And there was a place, Josephus refers to this place as having this rocky escarpment, And on this rock and out from it come the gate of Hades. Here we go. Josephus from his book War One. The place is called Panion, and at this spot a mountain rears its summit to an immense height aloft. At the base of the cliff is an opening into an overgrown cavern and within this, punching down to an immeasurable depth is a yawning chasm, enclosing a volume of still water, the bottom of which no sounding line has been found long enough to reach. So basically this just goes down to the pit of the earth, right? And outside and from beneath the cavern well, the springs from which spring up, well up the springs from which as something the Jordan takes its rise. So Hades, the god Hades received the murky darkness of the death below as his location and he was utterly ruthless and unyielding of all the gods and the one most hateful to humans and in times in time then the name hades became to refer to the place of the dead as well as the god of the dead and here at this place right here this was known this reached down in where these waters flowed underneath This rock was known as the gate of Hades in Jesus' day. So what does Jesus say again? Back to to Matthew 16. He says, I'm going to go back one more time. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What rock is he talking about? Maybe it's Peter. Some people have also interpreted saying, no, it's Peter's declaration. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That is the rock that we will build the church on. And then there are some who are saying, well, maybe he means this rock, which is also a bit confounding, isn't it? Peter continues, and Jesus continues, and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah also seems weird. Like, if you're here to try and change the world, maybe you should tell everybody who you are and that you want everybody to know and make sure that it is understood. But Jesus continues on and says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So he's explaining this. And what is Peter's response? Takes him inside and says, no. I don't like that plan. I'm not down with you suffering. Let's find a different way. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And I just have to wonder if Peter's trying to figure out, wait a second. Two minutes ago, I was blessed are you, son of a dove, and I was only revealed like this was something special knowledge that I had from Father Heaven. And here's some fancy keys. Thank you very much. I'll take those. And now one moment later, I'm get behind me, Satan. How did that happen? What did I do wrong? How did it flip so quick? Have you ever felt bad for Peter in this moment? I feel exhausted for him. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> that just happened. It must have been very upsetting. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you've been following or you're working with somebody as a mentor and you really want could be a parent and you've really wanted them to be proud of you. And then that moment where you know you've missed it, and then the words come and you're like bracing yourself for the fact that you don't want them to say the words. I feel that for Peter in this moment. It's rough. And sometimes you know, even when they're trying to say something nice, I had a mentor one time go, yeah, that was good. But the subtext was, you blew it. right? You missed it entirely. And you can either find those moments where you just sort of crumble into yourself, or you step back into the space, and you're like, okay, what am I not understanding? How can I know more? I want to know more. What's happening here, and why is it so quick? Well, let's take a look. I think when Peter says, you are the Messiah, which is just a word in Hebrew, Mashiach means anointed one, like anointed with oil, and it goes, in the Greek, it's Christos, which then is Christ, so... Jesus Christ, that's not first and last name, it's, you know, Jesus, the anointed one. When he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, I think he's hanging out with his own, of the times, second temple view of what a Messiah will be. The Messiah will be the anointed king of the house of David, who will come and deliver Israel from its enemies, establishing a world empire characterized by peace and justice. But the Messiah of the second temple period, the Messiah of Peter's understanding is going to come with power, with might, and rule over that earthly kingdom in Jerusalem. Like, let's get the Romans out. These people here, they've got to go, right? The Roman cult that we're sitting in the midst, as we look at all the idol worship and the depravity that we're in the midst of, all of that needs to leave. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's go. We're on the move. We can feel God at work. It's time to get the Pharaoh of our day kicked out and we can go back in and really rule in our land. That's what we're expecting the Messiah, the son of David, who will always be on the throne in Jerusalem to do. So you're of the son of David. Let's go do this. But that doesn't seem to be the way of Jesus. We have a clue in the Gospel of John. In John 6, it says that after people saw this miraculous feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus performed. They began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I'm not a king, not that way, not the one that you want. Maybe Jesus isn't rebuking Peter for his confession of him as Messiah or for missing the mark, right? Or saying, don't do this. I think Jesus is rebuking Satan for the temptation that Messiahship won't call for one to pick up a cross and to suffer and to lay down one's life. Jesus Messiahship. That one is the one that will demand suffering. The laying down of life. Jesus as Messiah, the son of the living God, won't come like Rome, in with force and forced allegiance, but will come in a different way. And I think some days as we go through this life, some days we'll find ourselves with Jesus hearing words like, blessed are you. And other days we're going to find ourselves in situations where we've just missed it entirely. And we are believing that the way of Jesus is an empire way or a way of power or some other way not intended by Christ. But this way of Jesus is suffering. When you read this account in Mark 8, Mark 8 starts with the feeding of the 4,000, and then the disciples getting on the boat and getting really confused because Jesus says things like, hey, um, beware the yeast of Herod and the Pharisees. they like, why is he talking? Oh, he must mean that we don't have enough bread. And then Jesus says, are you seriously talking about bread? Did you not just see the thing that we just did right, right there, like tons of bread? What's Jesus really saying? Beware of the way that these teachings are starting to shift in and make us think that this way comes with power, that we come by making and asserting ourselves better than others. The way of Jesus is that the last will be first, and the first will be last. It's a shift. He's like, so watch out for that yeast. And like, oh, he's talking about bread. And he goes, are you seriously, do you still... Have eyes but not see. Okay, I'll take you back to Batesida in Mark 8. And he says, like, let's go find this blind guy. He finds a blind guy and he's like, hey, and the blind guy's blind. And he's like, takes him out of the village, because he doesn't want to be made king by force. And he's like, let me heal you. And he heals him halfway. And the guy says, he goes, Can you see? And he says, No, I can kind of see, but I, the people look like trees walking around. And Jesus gives an example of t- you know what it's like? You know what you disciples are like? You're like somebody who's half blind. You still can't see. You're glimpsing it, but you can't see. So then he does the full healing. And then right after that, he walks him to Caesarea Philippi. Do you still see? Do you still proclaim part, but not fully understand? You've declared me as Messiah, as the son of the living God. But you don't know what that means. So in Mark 8, Jesus continues. He expands even more. And he says, he calls the crowd to him. This is in Caesarea Philippi. What is this crowd? Who's there? People there for the various bits of entertainment afforded them in Cesarea Philippi. And he calls the crowd, Jesus calls them along with his disciples, and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What a hard teaching. By the way, there's several times in the Gospels we'll like, and people thought that was too hard and then they stopped following him, right? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but lose their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man, this man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with his holy angels. Jesus turns to this world, to this crowd, with his disciples in this space, and he says, if you want to follow me, you have to decide that you will lose your life. And in so you will gain true life. He goes and he looks out and he says, hey, if anyone would be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will need to lose it. What good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? And what's really interesting, again, is that this is a group of 12 B students, C team, not the first pick, disciples from Galilee. Peter is one. This is a group of people who may or may not have all the winsome worldliness. They don't have maybe the best degrees and from the best tech places in Silicon Valley, right? They're just there. Jesus has called them. They're starting to follow. And this simple lifestyle, Torah-focused, God-focused, rejection of idolatry, laying down one's life for one another, this lifestyle is the lifestyle and the way of Jesus that gets invited to the gates of Hades. And Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. On this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my gathering, my assembly. And on this rock, as I build my church, the gates of Hades will not prevail. How does a gate function? Think of a gated community. What does that immediately infer? Keeping people out, right? Is a gate offensive or defensive? Defensive. So who's on the offense in Jesus' picture here? The church. We don't hole up inside the gated community and say, do you have a secret code? Okay, great, then you can come in. Instead, we go to the community and we say, we have life for you. We go to the Vegases or the empires of our day. We go to the places that have said that those with wealth or with connections are the most powerful and most important and most influential. We go to the systems of today and we say, can we show you that there is a way where you put others first, where you take the most marginalized and you center them, where you listen and lean in to those who are most harmed in these systems, where you go to those places and you say, there's life for you. There's more for you than just in this space. And it turns out that these early followers of Jesus, they really took this seriously, and they actually built a church at the gates of Hades at Caesarea Philippi. You can go and see it today. It was the first time we got to see it. It was uncovered during the pandemic. That's the church. They're like, oh, did you remember when Jesus took the disciples here as a three line, and then they said "And on this rock. I think he was literally saying that let's build a church here and they built a church at the gates of Hades. Isn't that incredible? When Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, he might've just in his first century context be thinking, You get to be in charge, not Caesar. You get to be in charge, not a Herod. You get to be in charge, not a system of power. But even though that's what he said, Jesus knew what he needed to understand was that that is true, but it will come through suffering. That the way that the church comes to the place of these gates, of these powers and principalities that are in our midst, I don't think we come blazing and insisting on power and influence. I think we come and we just simply say, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Did you know that there's a God who loves you? Did you know that in laying down your life, you can find it? Did you know that in the constant pursuit of the ways of this world, you will lose your soul? but did you know that you can start again? And if we ask Peter, who is Jesus? I think that that is a constant understanding for him in those first few years, but after the death, burial, and resurrection, he's and as we talked about for Acts chapter two, for Shavuot, Pentecost, he's coming to understand it's much bigger than just David. It's much bigger than that covenant just to one house. It's much bigger than one place in this world. It is something transformative that upends the pagan notions that are surrounding all of the disciples and Jesus. And this is why Peter will ultimately go and himself suffer and ultimately be killed. Because he will lay down his life for this Messiah. For the way of this Messiah the extending of oneself into these spaces and saying, how can I love and serve another in the way that Christ loved and served these? You know, when we look at the crowds that follow Jesus, the people who just can't get enough because he's contagious and fascinating and interesting and he's saving lives and raising people from the dead and healing the sick, when we see the crowd, it's everybody. It's not just people living on the north shore of Galilee. It's people from Lebanon and from Syria and from the Decapolis and from beyond the Jordan and Jerusalem and Samaria. It's everybody attracted to this person of Christ. It's not enough, I think, we also see from Peter to just have the words right, is it? You are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God, not this. Okay, Peter, that's good. But this Messiah comes through suffering. So I want to encourage us today as we think about Peter and try to figure out how Peter understood Christ and his continuing understanding of who Jesus is after the events that will unfold at the end of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that Peter has this experience in him. He has this experience where Jesus walks them all the way to the gates of hell and says, this gate won't stand. And this place too. Needs our good news. No one is beyond the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And all are welcome here. You are the Messiah of the living. You are the son of the living God. Not this. You are alive, Jesus. And this will be Peter's constant proclamation, following the death, burial, and resurrection as well. That Jesus is the Messiah. And he becomes Messiah through suffering. At this time, we'd like to invite the team back on up. And we're going to turn our hearts to the table where we remember Christ's suffering. We remember how Christ laid down his life for us, for me, for you, for those far away and for those close. And opens up the table to all, setting this table in all places. The places and the people that you and I think don't deserve it, don't get it, the people out there who would claim Christ as power and as empire, Jesus goes to them and says, are you hungry and are you thirsty? The people out there who don't know at all who Jesus is, Peter declares for us, he's the Messiah and he's alive. And this table is for all of us to draw near. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.